Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hi, everyone. This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. This is the first of a pair of interviews on alternative medicine, so be sure to look out for my interview with Colleen Durkach on her book, Bounding Biomedicine, if you like what you hear. For this interview, I spoke with Susan Califf, professor of women's studies at the University of California, San Diego, about her book, Nature's Path, A History of Naturopathic Healing in America, published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2016. Nature's Path is a history of a prominent alternative medical practice at the time when allopathic medical practice was being formalized in the United States. Alongside the rise of more stringent regulation of drugs and certification through the growing strength of the American Medical Association, Natureopathy, I managed to pronounce it incorrectly for nearly the entire interview, was a holistic practice that synthesized a variety of approaches to health and disease. Califf notes that the lack of unified theory was both the strength and pitfall of the movement. Rather than immediate and dramatic results and failures, more characteristic of allopathic medicine, naturopathy required the acceptance of gradual and subtle progress. While this history resonates with us today, unpacking it reveals a swath of historical actors, notably female practitioners, overlooked in the rise of medical orthodoxy in the 20th century. I enjoyed my conversation with Caliph, and I hope you will enjoy listening. 
I'm here today with Susan Califf to speak about her new book, Nature's Path. Califf, welcome to New Books in Medicine. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, so we like to start off these podcasts by having uh, our authors chart out their own intellectual trajectory. So I'd love to hear uh, how you came into the history of medicine and to the subject of hand. Sure. Uh, I was that first generation of students in the 1970s that could actually create an independent major in women's studies before it was a recognized field. And I carried that through my undergraduate work, um, a master's at Sarah Lawrence, where I focused on the history of the eradication of female midwifery. And then at Brown in American Studies, where I... uh, wrote my dissertation on the 19th century cold water cure movement and how it served as this very empowering alternative to allopathic medicine's view of women being controlled uh, and diminished by their physiology. Uh, My first uh, teaching position was at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, where I taught medical ethics and the history of medicine and women's studies to the medical students and their clinical faculty. And after uh, several years there in the mid-1980s, I relocated to San Diego State University to the oldest women's studies department in the country. And the, the, the thread that continues throughout all of my work is looking at women's relationship with healing as practitioners, as patients, and what that tells us about their status in society Uh, the constraints that are put upon them in terms of um, bodily uh, rationales being used. In other words, women's physiology limits them because, which is a theme that, you know, has resonated throughout American history, and how women have uh, resisted through alternative healing ideologies and self-help and the like to create a space of agency for their their health and their intellectual expression. Mm -hmm. And so... First of all, with the with the book at hand, I wanted to just for uh, our listeners get. I wanted to have you give an overview of what it was like to be practicing medicine in America at the turn of the twentieth century, and particularly who was practicing medicine at the turn of the century. What were the different kinds of groups that were beginning to kind of form coalitions and divides? Sure, I'll actually go back um, several decades before that. Uh, that there great. were a number of competing medical sects. Um, the dominant medical sex was the group that was called uh, allopaths. And they were also self-named the regulars and cleverly <laughs> dubbed everyone else the irregulars. The allopaths slash regulars is the group that became the AMA, which constituted itself in 1847 Uh, In its preamble to its constitution, uh, it said excluding all practitioners of and proceeded to name every other alternative healing sect, such as hydropathy, the water cure physicians, um, botanics, homeopathy. So the alternative uh, healing groups constituted about 20% of what the American population turned toward. What allopaths had in their favor was very dramatic interventionism. Um, They would bleed, they would purge, they would use leeches. It wasn't that their therapeutics were effective. It's simply that the 
results was so demonstrable and that appealed to people, this, this idea that I'm sick and I want to heal it to do something. The alternative um, healing groups at the time uh, were much more along the lines of let nature take its course, do things to stimulate the body's ability to heal itself. Also predicated in the idea of traditional healing is that you enable the body to heal itself and there is not an expert patient relationship the way there was and is in allopathic medicine. So it called on people to be much more instrumental, take much more responsibility for taking care of themselves versus reaching out to an expert for episodic emergency care. So enter in 1896 a group of European-inspired, largely Germanic healers who brought to the United States a healing system that they secured the legal uh, term naturopathy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They did that in part because they needed to avoid words like physician, healer, doctor. The AMA had succeeded in making those words sacrosanct, something that only the allopaths can use. And anyone else that any of those other healing alternative sects, and at this point it includes chiropractors, osteopathy, homeopathy, um, any other group that uses those words can be arrested for practicing medicine without a license. So naturopathy was a sort of cornucopia of therapeutics that drew on the best methods of is an irony here to call it alternative because it's actually traditional healing. Mm -hmm. So they drew on the best um, methods of traditional healing and uh, immediately found themselves um, uh, running into the buzzsaw of the allopathic medical machine. Mm -hmm. And your book, uh, it starts with and then returns to, to uh, a really interesting professional couple, uh, Benedict and Louisa Lust. So what was characteristic about that relationship in the foundation of naturopathy? And uh, particularly, what was uh, Louisa's role in promoting the practice and sort of entering into uh, the medical pr practice as a woman at the time? Oh, that, they're such a fascinating couple. Uh, both German-born, uh, Louisa had emigrated into the United States, uh, New Jersey, in uh, the late 1890s, uh, excuse me, late 1880s, and had opened up a health sanitarium retreat called the Bellevue uh, Sanitarium, and Benedict Lust had also emigrated in. He was chosen, hand-chosen, as the personal emissary of Father Sebastian Knepp, the uh, German popularizer of the cold water cure movement, and Louisa actually hired Benedict to administer water cure treatments at her Bellevue resort. Um, very, very interesting couple. She was several years older than he was, and prior to their meeting, Louisa had actually been the personal assistant to Tennessee Claflin on mm -hmm. three world tours, and Tennessee Claflin was the sister of Victoria Woodhull. Together, the two sisters were considered to have, quote, the most dangerous women in America <laughs> at the time, uh, largely because they advocated free love. And Louisa had traveled with Tennessee as Tennessee lectured about 
women's rights and railed against the sexual double standard of morality, women's rights to control their reproductive um, uh, choices and uh, family size. And Louisa uh, also had the very fortunate experience of profiting from Tennessee and Victoria's relationship with Cornelius Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt had set up the two sisters in the first female-owned stock brokerage brokerage firm on Wall Street. So by the time Louisa leaves that partnership with them and emigrates to the United States, she has considerable wealth behind her, and she uses that wealth for the remainder of her life uh, to support all efforts of the naturopathic movement, um, probably prime among them, um, bailing out naturopaths, that are constantly arrested and put in prison for this so-called practicing medicine without a license. Now, Louisa and Benedict open up their own uh, health resort in New Jersey called Youngborn. They eventually open up two more, one in Florida, one in Cuba. And it's through this agrarian, away-from-home environment that they think that it's uh, the ideal place for people to be able to reject uh, the toxins of city life, reclaim uh, healthy food habits, exercise, and the like. And Louisa, let me also say, she is an advocate for so many different aspects of women's life. The movement, women's rights, the movement as a whole uh, was in favor of women's suffrage at the time. We're talking the 1890s. Uh, They actively recruited women practitioners, saying that women had a special historical knowledge with healing. Women were crucial uh, as the arbiters of their family's health. And uh, again, um, reflecting many of the views she had uh, been exposed to from Tennessee Claflin, uh, she advocated, um, you know, striking down the sexual double standard Um, interestingly, uh, not in favor of birth control or abortion, believing Mm -hmm. that that interfered with women's, quote-unquote, natural systems, but trying to shore up um, intellectual and cultural rationales that would empower women um, within that ideology. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in unpacking a bit of the stigmatization of naturopathy. So one perspective on this is... uh, It seems that Benedict, when he was uh, sort of trying to establish himself in the practice, he went and trained as an allopathic physician and as an an osteopath, which is kind of, uh, you know, interesting because he met resistance from both of those. So what were these, like, uh, efforts to legitimize the practice? How did they take place in the professional sphere outside of the kind of legal strictures imposed by the AMA? Right. I mean, and this was a tremendous point of contention between Benedict and Louisa. Louisa said... Naturopathy is its own system. You don't need credentials from the um, allopathic realm to be a legitimate practitioner. In fact, not only did he get an MD degree and a DO degree, he also got a water cure degree, an eclectic degree, Mm -hmm. and a homeopathic degree. And he thought that these credentials would give him credibility as he interacted with the allopaths. And in fact, that never happened. And years later, he admitted that that had been uh, misguided. Um, 
I think that what Louisa envisioned is that naturopathy would become its own system, which in fact it did. Um, and it, I think Benedict's experience shows right away just the level of vitriolic resistance that they met with from the allopathic profession who were very, very uh, politically savvy. Uh, the allopaths uh, managed to get major philanthropic groups at the time, the Rockefellers, uh, Carnegie, uh, Mellon, and the like, uh, to give large um, $500 million grants to different medical schools that would be advanced, such as Johns Hopkins was the considered the ideal model, which brings me great pleasure since my book was published by Johns Hopkins. <laughs> but, um, but basically what um, they were trying to do is, with a great deal of tension, they needed some sort of licensing legitimacy. The naturopaths did. Otherwise, they would have been completely obliterated by the allopaths who were working very, very hard to try to accomplish that. Benedict's vision for the movement was that it would be open arms toward all alternative practitioners. And I argue in the book that that was both a strength and a weakness of the movement. So they welcome in botanical healers, those that heal with plants. They welcome in people that heal with electricity, um, members of other alternative sects like phrenologists who would read the human skull, um, the bumps on the human skull. And what all of this did was it prevented a sort of cohesive definition of naturopathy from developing. And under Benedict's leadership, the movement vacillated between um, welcoming everyone and then every several years, Benedict and Louisa had always maintained a consistent position on this, Benedict finally realizing that they need to close ranks and welcome in those who are true naturopathic practitioners trained through naturopathic institutions if they had any hope of securing licensing laws and stopping this constant harassment of legal persecution, arrests, and prison time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, public opposition to naturopathy uh, often, it was sort of embroiled in controversies that, I mean, I guess the rest of the American medical establishment was uh, with eugenics. So, uh, and you discuss this a little bit in the book that uh, in a way naturopathy retains, like a lot of allopathic uh, American medicine, this connection with the early eugenics movement that sort of uh, like casts a shadow over later practices. So what was the what was the movement's stance on eugenic practices? You brought up uh, birth control just before, so I'd be interested to see like what the association is more deeply. Sure. They were people of their time, and one of the things I trace in the book in some detail is um, popular American comfort with eugenics thinking and eugenics used in immigration policies, uh, eugenics used as... Um, eugenics rationale used as predictor of mental competence and, and how that clearly overlaps with racist ideology. Uh, the naturopaths believed that there, there was the ability for human perfectionism, mm. that if you lived in accordance with nature's laws, 
It, this is through diet, through exercise, through spirituality. It's a very Christian-based movement in the early years um, that people had the potential to create a, a far better version of themselves. And, of course, that thinking overlaps with eugenics thinking. One of the things that, again, that Benedict Lust, as the editor of the premier national publications, had a tremendous um, uh, impact on was the willingness to print any and all opinions, whether they agreed with his or not. And so the Naturopath and Herald of Health, which went through a number of name changes um, from the early 1900s um, for the next uh, 40, 50 years, um, reprinted pieces that were clearly pro-eugenics. And it's difficult to tease out if this, if these were beliefs that the lusts themselves held dear. I tend to think not, because on the other hand, they had very populist sentiments um, that were in favor of immigrants' rights that clearly identified uh, racism and uh, nativism afoot in, in enforced uh, vaccination campaigns. But there is this overshadowing of eugenics, a prominent uh, naturopath, and this is where the terminology gets so confusing, um, N-A-T-U-R-E-O-P-A-T-H, not to be confused with N-A-T-U-R-O-P-A-T-H, um, went to Germany, um, became familiar with the German youth movement, actually met with people that became um, frighteningly powerful in the Third Reich, and came back to America heralding the health aspects of the German youth movement, which was, of course, not synonymous with um, uh, Nazi youth. But and in the American, um, for the American public, this was um, the same as if naturopaths had endorsed that, when in fact that small letter E represented a different line of thinking. And so it's problematic, and I argue in the book that it uh, serves as a as a contradiction in the midst of um, what what is generally very very progressive politics on the um, part of naturopaths as a national movement. And so, one interesting chapter you have is on the definition of women's bodies through naturopathy and the kind of power exerted by uh, women practitioners who were able to sort of reclaim this practice uh, for the proper understanding or a more deep and embodied understanding of like women's health as such. So where do these lines begin to be drawn? Because as you've sort of illustrated, there's some, there are some interesting tensions over this you know, achieving some kind of ideal of human perfection that's nascent in uh, eugenics and some of the thinking at the time. So that trickles in a little bit to ideas about how women should conduct themselves. But then at the same time, you do draw connections to a populism that they entertain. So how was it that, um, like, women's bodies were understood in naturopathy, and how did that actually, um, how did that uh, answer to some of the problems of, you know, orthodox views on reproductive rights, for instance? Sure. In naturopathy, they viewed women's bodies as um, sources of strength for women, intellectual strength, physical strength, 
they did not view the female body as less than the male body. And this is a tremendous juxtaposition um, against allopathic medicine, which in the last hundred years, actually it goes back much longer than that, but had deemed women's bodies inferior to men, um, uh, the menstrual cycle, pregnancy, menopause, all of these were seen as critical junctures of illness under allopathy. And under naturopathy, these were seen as natural processes that did not impair women intellectually. And so they brought that thinking into the movement. It meant, first of all, that they, as I said, actively recruited women practitioners who were seen as having a particular set of skills. It's also interesting because it's a form of essentialism, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Women are innately suited to heal. Um, And while it's essentialist, at least it generates a form of agency. Um, They're also, though, arguing that women have a particular set of skills, um, be it empathy, um, the ability to understand the health issues that women themselves face, and particularly that women face as the caregivers of their families. And naturopathy really emphasized the need for women to treat themselves first and then their families. And a primary way that women were to care for their family's health was through the preparation of food. Mm-hmm. And this is very important because we're talking about a precise era when um, food processing and unregulated um, food production is taking place. I mean, think of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Um, there's an, um, the, there were 50 food additives that were put in um, different chemicals that were routinely uh, put into food products. And under naturopathic thinking, all of this processed food was to be avoided. And you did that by women's ability to prepare pure, unadulterated food at home. There's social class bias here. Yes. <laughs> um, because for poor ethnic people, for um, some African-Americans that have migrated north from the south, um, any food is welcome. And so urging people, it's, it's one of the contradictions we see now with the organic food movement. You know, you yes. go to an organic market and uh, you know that what you're looking at is far preferable to what you're going to buy in a grocery store. But it, it gets real simple when someone's making a decision, can I afford $5 for a head of lettuce? Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's that tension there between advocating uh, a woman's ability to care for her family, um, but also dissuading women from the purchasing of processed foods, um, which were cheap. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in terms of your question about reproduction, uh, there is this essentialist thinking that women's bodies um, are physiologically uh, programmed for reproduction. To interfere with reproduction was to derail women's natural um, health. And so birth control was discouraged. Um, By that I mean uh, um, things like coitus interruptus, um, the use of condoms. But what was um, tremendously encouraged was men being 
raised to believe that decisions about reproduction, when to conceive and have a child, these were women's decisions to make. And men must comply with women's uh, choices on this issue. And so it's a more proactive type of thinking about how women control Mm -hmm. their bodies and consequently men's sexuality as well. That men are sort of um, creatures of unbridled lust. This was a um, common thinking. And I must say a, a sort of middle and upper middle class thought about male sexuality. This was not necessarily a view shared by working class and ethnic people. Uh, but um, naturopathic um, advocates said that um, these decisions should be women's and men must comply. And much of the prescriptive literature spoke to that. Hmm. That's fascinating. And so you bring up uh, the literature, and I'm actually wondering, in this story, so you've you've described uh, the establishment of three of these vacation centers for healing, but how really was the practice and teaching of naturopathy spread? Actually, the percentage of people that could go to these various young-borns, and by the way, they were spelled Y-U-N-G-B-O. RN um, was was proportionally very small compared with the number of people who could treat themselves at home and or consult a naturopathic practitioner. Um, but they had very, very large um, clientele bases. Uh, the one in New Jersey could hold several hundred people at a time. Um, they practiced uh, nudity there, and you can imagine how that Um, went over with the local community in New Jersey in the 1890s, Um, vegetarianism, um, exercise, and exercise for women um, was very much uh, controversial at this time, particularly for middle and upper middle class women. So naturopathy is spread um, through treatment of patients at the three young borns. It's also spread through uh, a tremendous amount of written literature and um, dozens and dozens of texts are written that teach people how to live um, in harmony with nature, which was an expression they used all the time. And that included everything from diet to sun and light cures, uh, therapeutic applications of water, uh, dietary uh, regimens, and a tremendous emphasis on spiritual well-being. Um, one of the things I was continuously impressed by um, in naturopathic thinking is this um, body, body, mind, spirit, well-being, or run-on word, one, one word. There was not this hmm. um, Western sense of, um, you know, there's mental well-being and there's physical well-being and there's spiritual well-being as three different entities. Mm-hmm. Naturopaths believed that health uh, necessitated a blending of all three. And so the texts and the weekly, monthly publications all emphasize this, um, telling people that, that you can do very conscious things to live in harmony uh, with nature, and this idea of conscious living permeates all of the literature, the speeches given by the leaders, 
um, and the treatments at the Away From Home Cures. And as people go to see individual naturopathic practitioners, and there are thousands of them literally across America, this is the philosophy that they're being acquainted with. Mm-hmm. And so you brought up before how a lot of uh, Louisa Luce money was spent actually just breaking uh, naturopathic practitioners out of jails. But I'm wondering, so you have a great chapter on the kind of culture wars, uh, the beginning of the 20s between this new progressivism and kind of, you know, older conservative practices. And I'm wondering, so what were some of the ways through which the alternative, uh, the American Medical Association actually wage this war to kind of quash um, naturopathy and the rest of the alternative practices, which it systematically did not include by detailing in its charter. Yeah, I mean, this is a classic example of a populist movement. I think medical historians have long acknowledged um, medical populism in the 1800s, going back to the popular health movement of the 1830s and 40s. And what I found in the study of naturopathic history is that they are the leading group that keeps this emphasis um, very, very strong uh, throughout the 20th century as well. The AMA is trying to secure for itself exclusive rights and privileges uh, as the healing elite in this country. And that means um, successfully passing laws that say only people that have degrees from AMA uh, institutions are allowed to practice medicine. And they go about, particularly as a result of the Flexner report uh, of the early uh, 1900s, uh, closing schools that do not meet AMA standards. Um, This is not to say that these schools didn't produce effective healers. It simply is to say that they were not AMA-sanctioned schools. The AMA also um, forms uh, very successful, powerful liaisons with the public health movement. And through the public health movement, the AMA is empowered to engage in enforced vaccination campaigns where they would storm into tenement buildings or black communities in the South and restrain and forcibly vaccinate immigrants and people of color who were seen as uh, particular um, undesirables whose communities were breeding grounds um, for communicable um, diseases. They also buddy up uh, the AMA with the pharmaceutical industry and uh, secure laws that say that only AMA physicians have prescription power. Uh, And so all of these things come into play to create an absolute, um, it's a sort of um, perfect storm in terms of medical practice because naturopaths and other alternative healers are arguing, let people choose their own healers. Let people choose what kind of medical care they want. And dominant medicine is saying, uh, no, no, uh, we're taking any and all steps necessary to see that we are the one form of medical care that's available to people. And as insurance in the mid-20th century starts to play a role with, with um, and later still, um, um, Social Security and Medicare, you see that the AMA is by and large successful in this mm-hmm. venture, that they are the one brand of medicine um, deemed legitimate. 
Um, the AMA's influence in the military is also immense. Uh, soldiers can only have access to allopathic medicine, which meant that they also were subjected to um, what naturopaths called unbridled use of vaccination by World War I. Um, soldiers had between 11 and 15 inoculations um, required of them, and by World War II, um, that had doubled. And this is really problematic in an era when uh, vaccinations were largely um, uh, the, the laboratory conditions for um, producing vaccinations were largely unregulated and meant significant uh, amounts of the vaccines were actually themselves toxic and mm-hmm. inducing the ailments themselves. So in this context, the, the naturopaths really sound a clarion call and take the lead among the healing groups saying, we resist this. We resist this push of uh, the elite to enforce one brand of medical care on the American public. And by taking that lead, their practitioners um, are arrested under a variety of trumped-up charges. Forgive the word trumped-up. In fact, the local medical societies would actually hire um, women often who would serve as spies to uh, um, induce entrapments of naturopaths. They would go to a naturopath and say, um, I have these stomach problems, I have this mood disorder, and a naturopath might say, well, you know, these teas will help or try this dietary regimen whereupon that person who was acting as a spy, there was a notorious woman named Frances Benzacre, hired by the New York Medical Society. She would then turn around and her evidence would be used to arrest that naturopathic um, practitioner. And if this sounds like uh, cloak and dagger uh, drama, it was. It was. I mean, literally um, enforced entrapments to bring down uh, legal censure on naturopaths and other people practicing alternative medicine. So, yeah, the, the term culture wars um, struck me as a, a perfect title for it because what's really, what's really happening here is a type of social, social class um, warfare, uh, anti-immigrant, uh, anti-people of color uh, sentiment um, being um, played out in a medical arena um, through allopathic policies and naturopaths and other alternative healers really trying to keep those forces at bay to this very well-organized and successful populist movement. Mm-hmm. And so all the, all the anti-vaccination stuff leads me to like a couple questions. Um, so uh, for one, you uh, frame these, you sort of trace this narrative in a chapter that also deals with anti-vivisection, uh, which I guess has fewer parallels today, but maybe 
a good one might be research on non-human animals. Um, and then the anti-vaccination stuff, which you just discussed. So I'm actually wondering, you know, what do you think the parallels are today, to today's uh, anti-vaccination movement? Do they derive some of their intellectual uh, strength and legitimacy from these kinds of practices? Is it entirely different? And then also, could you spell out the stakes of the anti-vivisectionist movement? Sure. Well, let me start with the anti-vivisectionists first, since chronologically um, that really had a huge impact on the anti-vaccination sentiment. Um, You know, we're all familiar with Pavlov and we use that, we use that term Pavlovian response. Um, But when you really study the use of animals in scientific experimentation, Um, what I found was actually quite horrifying, that the vast majority of animals were not anesthetized um, when they were used. Um, Sometimes uh, a procedure that was demonstrated once on an animal um, would be repeated hundreds, thousands of times again in a a surgical theater. There was a, a sort of bravado that went with animal experimentation for some practitioners And anti-vivisection very early on was very much also a woman's movement. Women identified um, strongly, particularly um, one historian makes a very interesting case, um, with animal mothers because what Pavlov would actually do is take uh, a a dog, uh, a mother dog, and uh, I'll spare you the gruesome details, but levy um, certain... Um, physical trials on the puppies while the mother dog was observing to not only see how the puppies responded, it always resulted in death, but how the mother dog responded. And historians have argued that this resonated with women because this was an era of sexual surgeries that were performed on women. Um, Estimates are roughly um, 25 to 40,000 sexual surgeries performed on female humans, oophorectomies, ovariotomies, clitoridectomies. And so women flocked to the anti-vivisection movement, and it took the form of protective laws um, aimed to uh, spare draft horses, particular cruelty. Um, uh, It was standard fare for medical science to get their animals from city dog pounds and animal shelters. And it was a very successful anti-vivisection movement. Also, um, anti-vivisectionists were not at all certain that the uh, insights that were being gained from medical animal experimentation applied to human. And mm-hmm. that's an excellent point. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is the, um, how much can you generalize and right. apply to human disease, um, particularly when the animals themselves were not subject to the same disease. Okay. And this goes all the way back to the last, I mean, the last big anti-vivisectionist movement in early modern England, right, where the same arguments are being made that, uh, you know, you can't actually derive principles of human physiology from animals, so we need to do more with humans. So (laughs) it's a little bit of an interesting 360 there then. No, you're absolutely right. In fact, much of the American anti-vivisection movement was informed by the British movement. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
And so there's also just that this, and I think this is a radical posture at the time. Um, naturopaths argued that animals had souls, and it was not um, within uh, human um, prerogative to use, and they would say abuse animals in any way that they saw fit for the, quote, so-called advancement of medical science, unquote. And so the vaccination movement, which, of course, used the animal model, you know, vaccines were mm. um, drawn from um, cows, smallpox was uh, – Vaccine was uh, germinated on cows um, and then uh, injected into human beings. Naturopaths um, thought that the whole rationale of vaccination was faulty, that you're injecting um, infected pus that you've germinated on an animal into humans. And as I mentioned, um, the actual vaccine itself um, was frequently of very poor quality and actually inducing disease in the people that uh, it was supposed to be um, protecting. And the I, I think for naturopaths and other um, populist health reformers, the idea that the AMA was being given carte blanche ability through the public health movement, through legislative acts, to forcibly vaccinate the American population was absolutely abhorrent uh, to the natural healers. One, because what is the efficacy of these vaccines? And two, um, when did we as a nation agree that we would let a group of educated elite dictate how people would be treated medically? And so anti-vaccination became symbolic um, of a whole variety of resistances to AMA um, medical procedures. Your questions about what are parallels with today uh, anti-vaccination movement, I think there's a number of very strong parallels, a sense of, again, a populist resistance, um, don't tell me how to uh, care for myself, don't tell me and my family that we have only one form of medicine that has the sole and ultimate truth. Um, people want to have the ability to choose which type of healthcare, which type of philosophy. Um, and of course, these are flashpoints in areas where families are actually refusing vaccination. Um, we live a great portion of the year in San Diego, uh, where in some school districts, 20% of parents are refusing mm. to have their children vaccinated. And there's a public health outcry saying that these children are, you know, um, conduits for reintroducing um, these viruses that have been largely eradicated. But I think, I think the rationale of the movement um, anti-vaccination is still um, fairly consistent from the early 20th century, which is um, an outcry, um, a refusal to be dictated to by medical authority and all of the political henchmen that back up that medical authority. Mm -hmm. huh. That's fascinating. So 
Uh, as you sort of follow naturopathy into the middle part of the 20th century, how is the field professionalized, first of all? And then sort of what is its fate? What is the current institutional state of naturopathy? Well, you know, the mid-20th century was a, a really um, pivotal time for naturopathy. Um, you remember, this is a group of eclectic firebrands drawn from many different uh, healing origins who whose leadership finally realizes that there has to be a cohesive professionalized core to protect people from charlatans. Anyone can say they're a nature doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could mean a variety of things um, from a naturopathic degree, an ND degree, to someone who simply um, read some on their own and brought their own eclectic philosophies into a healing um, uh, encounter with the patient. So the need for a professionalized core um, emerges, and yet there's a tremendous irony there because early naturopaths are opposed to professional elitism. (laughs) Um, So there's a tremendous split. Um, in the naturopathic profession, how much to adhere to professional standards. But by the mid, uh, by the 1950s, it's clear that professional standards uh, need to be instituted. And that's when we start to see the formation of what in the present day has led to five naturopathic schools certified to grant the ND naturopathic doctor degree um, five American schools, two Canadian schools, one uh, acknowledged licensing body, and the current American, Associ- American Association of Naturopathic Physicians. So while that transition occurred, it doesn't mean that self-proclaimed nature doctors said, okay, we agree, and stepped passively aside. In fact, uh, statistically, um, only about 50% of um, credentialed NDs belong to the professional association because there is still that um, distrust of um, elitism within naturopathy. Um, But they do become uh, professionalized, And uh, that continues to meet with allopathic resistance. Um, By the uh, in the the early decades of the 1900s, Benedict Luce and activists across the United States have passed successful licensing laws protecting naturopaths, which then, of course, the allopathic medical profession in the in the guise of the AMA, the public health movement, the military, um, and the local medical societies um, goes after them with a vengeance as well, trying to strike down these laws. We see a number of these protective laws repealed um, by mid-century. And uh, it's one of the goals of the president of the present uh, American Association of Naturopathic Physicians to, to continue securing um, protective measures and passing licensing laws. Um, at present, there are 17 states in the United States where practicing naturopathic medicine is legal, um, in addition to U.S. territories and Washington, D.C., 
also have protective laws. And the laws that really set the tone for this both were passed in Washington, D.C. in 1929 and then again in 1931. But it continues to be a flashpoint because if alternative healers, and again, the irony of the word alternative, if traditional healers um, are kept from being able to legally practice medicine, it, it continues to perpetuate a one-system type of medicine um, uh, dictated by the AMA. And so um, the AANP now has its national offices in Washington, D.C. to maximize effective lobbying techniques. And um, I think it's a tremendous challenge for the present profession. And here's one reason why. And again, this is a reason that began um, back in the 1890s. Um, If you go online and type in the words naturopathic doctor, um, naturopathy degree, you are immediately um, slammed with um, dozens and dozens of hits online for correspondence courses, um, schools that claim they offer these degrees. And some of these programs are clearly bogus. I mean, they involve three months of study or a year of study, but you get a naturopathic doctor diploma. Um, And clearly this is not um, classroom-based instruction. Uh, The vast majority of it is not clinically based. And so these type of uh, charlatan diploma mills um, really continue to cut into the credibility of licensed naturopathic education, which is four years of medical education, first two years medical science, then followed by uh, nutrition, botanics, um, and uh, um, exercise physiology. So the continued proliferation of um, so-called naturopathic um, degrees, many of which are in fact quite quite um, useless, uh, continues to haunt the profession and fuel the AMA's claim that much of naturopathic medicine is not legitimate. And of course, um, they're very aware of the difference between (laughs) sanctioned, credible credible, um, institution-based, and by institution I mean classroom and clinical-based education, and these online or short-term live-in programs, but it continues to be scrambled in the um, uh, consciousness of the American public, which is which, and how credible is naturopathic healing. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much. And I'm wondering, just uh, to wrap things up here as we're kind of running out of time, what are you working on currently? Well, I'm continuing to look at the various aspects of naturopathic healing. Um, This this was the largest project that I ever undertook in my (laughs) professional life. Um, And I've done several other books. Each each state could actually have um, a history of naturopathic um, licensure and leadership. I'm going to leave that to other scholars. But I'm continuously fascinated by that and doing reading on it. I'm actually um, shifting um, my scholarship to look at um, LGBTQ plus 
health-related issues, um, particularly issues um, around uh, women and female-identified um, health concerns, um, the development of safe zones programs um, in the United States. Safe zones programs are sometimes called safe space programs on college and high school campuses. We developed a very, very strong safe zones program, one of the largest in the Western United States at San Diego State University. And I'm researching the history of those programs, their effectiveness, and how those uh, programs can filter into and interact effectively with LGBTQ plus um, social activism in the larger communities beyond the university and high school settings. Great. That sounds fascinating. Well, Caleb, thanks so much for speaking with us today. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Uh, this has been New Books in Medicine.